Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. This week I spoke with Amanda Palmer. Amanda is an American singer, songwriter, musician, author and performance artist. She's known for her incredible ability to connect with the fans and work with people to create art. Her music and art is often infused with a strong political message and or calls to action. On a personal note, she's overwhelmingly charming, chaotic, alluring and chaotic. Here's a, I'm on tour right now. <laughs> in the middle of a goddamn pandemic. I'm on tour right now in Australia, New Zealand and Canada and the USA with my new show, Recovery Alive. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Where are you with this coronavirus? It's selling out fast. The coronavirus, the coronavirus I mean, it's flying off the shelves. Second shows have been added in Auckland, Victoria and Canada. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets and dates. Make sure to sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com to be showed, to, to be told first about any new shows. Just go to russellbrand.com and get on the mailing list. They get, I've got all sorts of stuff. Like mailing, you get a mailing list. You're on a mailing list. I mean, is that, does that astonish you to learn that you'll be on a mailing list? But I do send out actually quite good content and opportunities to do weird stuff. Check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and clips from the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get notified of new videos. I do like, you know them spiritual videos I do? I do longer versions on YouTube, so check them out on there. Let me know what you think about the podcast on social media. Twitter, at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin, at Russell Brand on Insta, at Tickety Tuck on Russell Brand, LinkedIn, Russell Brand. Why don't we get into the phenomenal Amanda Palmer, who before the show just was eating great wedges of fruit, choked on a pomegranate before embarking on a rather wonderful pirouation. I'm sort of, my mate used that word, like, you know, like pirouette. I looked it up in the dictionary, it didn't exist, but I thought it should. Pirouation, like in a pirouetting, beautiful language, very powerful and impressive human being. I hope you enjoy it. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Amanda Palmer, thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. It's such a joy to talk to you. I've been watching you for a long, long while. I've been aware of you for even longer. We were part of a trilogy from the great filmmaker Andy Timina about creativity, along with my blessed, beloved brother, dear Shepherd Fairy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. We're in Australia now. It's true. You're touring, aren't you? I am touring Australia. I just finished up. Oh, you done it? We played the same hall. Yeah, I just was there last night. Now, your show's for four hours long. Mm. And that's, you're, you're singing, you're telling stories. What the hell's going on for that four hours, Amanda? <laughs> well, it would technically take me four hours to explain the whole show to you. But it's basically, I put out an album last spring. It's called There Will Be No Intermission. Um, it's, it's a really, really, really personal collection of songs. And I, so the last big record I put out was in 2012, and that was the one that I kickstarted. And this one is, um, it's all solo songs, and they're really sparely arranged. And the last seven years of my life are kind of chronicled in them. It's a really, it's really direct autobiographical record, unlike the Dresden Dolls stuff, which is my old band stuff, which was very sort of like obscure, poetic, gothy cabaret stuff these songs are 
they're almost like folk songs. And the last seven years of my life have been really hard. I lost my best friend to cancer. I've had two abortions. I had a child. I went through a miscarriage. And I wanted to write about all of it in the record. And I set myself to that task. And then when I, when I knew I was going to tour, I was like, okay, I could do this the easy, simple by the book way and just like play six songs from the record, play a couple of Dresden Dolls songs, get off stage in two hours, sign a bunch of autographs. Or I could challenge myself and tell the hard stories. And then that, and that's the only idea that I had. And also some of it was inspired by seeing Hannah Gadsby. Some of it was inspired by seeing Nick Cave and just remembering like, oh, right, like I don't have to get up in front of people and pretend that I'm okay. I can, I can get up in front of people and say fucking anything I want. And given what's going on on the planet right now, maybe it's a good idea that I get up and just talk about this. And then I didn't expect the show to be funny, but of course, because the stuff that I'm talking about is so incredibly dark, including like going through a miscarriage all alone and, and these really sort of like difficult morose things, the show wound up being really funny. And so I play material from the record. I tell these stories. I play Disney songs. There's a great Disney song right in the middle of all of the abortion stories. There's a great Frozen song you could probably guess which one at the end of the miscarriage story. Like it's pretty, it's a pretty fucking funny show. And now it's over. I'm, I'm just wrapping up this tour. All right. So how do you feel? So fucking happy. Cause it went really well. I mean, I didn't know what I was expecting, but it, been, it went about as well as I could have expected. And I've got four more shows in New Zealand and then I am done. I've got four shows in New Zealand. We're living in parallel worlds. We're probably and I. playing the same. Actually, we're probably playing different venues because I need pianos at my shows, and pianos are hard to find in New Zealand. I just oh, found this out. They don't have pianos everywhere. Not easy in New to get your hands on a piano. Not among that lot. So, what you're interested in, I suppose, then, is authentic experience and how you can transfer that. I like what you said about realizing that you don't have to yield to a pre-existing paradigm of what performance is supposed to be that once you're in that place you can just sort of go or just do what I want or just say what I like you know if, particularly if you understand your own intention well what do you think what is your intention in that space other than exploration of the last seven years of various forms of suffering that you've described mm. Well, there's probably a lot of intentions all intermingling, but I think the main one is to remind people that they're not alone. Mm. I mean, there's so there's there's so little discussion, particularly around the topics of what it feels like to have an abortion or to choose an abortion or to have to make decisions about um, reproductive things and, you know, in, and it's the same with miscarriage. It's just not something people want to chat about. Tell me more about that. I would like to understand more. What were you talking about, like, in regard to abortion? Um, well, I've had three abortions. I had the fir my first one at 17, and it was sort of a very ordinary, oh, my God, I'm in high school. You know, I, I want to finish high school. It didn't really feel like that much of a difficult choice. Um, but the experience was really 
harrowing because while I my you know my my mom who I told was really supportive and even made the appointment at Planned Parenthood um you know while that little zone felt safe no one had told me anything about what goes on in your head and what goes on in your heart when you walk through an experience like that and also when you physically walk through like no one warned me that I was going to have to physically walk through a throng of people, not people across the street holding signs, but like I had to physically walk through a mob of people holding photographs of bloody fetuses this far from me. Where did you go for the, the Brooklyn, Massachusetts to, you know, to your neighborhood planned parenthood in my nice little suburb. But, you know, this was 1993 and things have probably changed since then, but like I had to walk through that mob of people. In your experience having that abortion, what do you you feel, is there anything that you identify with, with the pro-life side of the argument? What do you think is the germ or seed of, or genesis of their um, antipathy and, and, you know, that sounds like it's really contributing to making a difficult situation more stressful. But do you feel any identification with that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I our belief systems are so random sometimes. I mean, you're just raised to believe what your parents, your community, these random people in positions of power and authority hold out to you. And you take it and you believe it because of course you do. Because of course, because that's safe. Because you're elders are teaching you what is good what is bad what is sacred what is life and in this case um you know if you if you really believe um that a you know that a that a that a life begins at conception and then and that's your belief system and that's a person and you've had that drilled into you, I can totally understand why abortion would seem, um, you know, barbaric. Yeah. But since I don't hold that belief system, I have this other belief system. I don't feel that way. Um, But, you know, this is also why there's this, there's, there's this other larger argument to be had about like who who gets to make that decision and this is why any discussion about abortion and reproductive rights to me always comes back to one main tenant which is this is my this is my body you should trust me you should trust me to know what to do i'm i am this body i'm this woman why don't you why don't you trust me why don't you trust me to to know and make my own decision? And and that's what a lot of it comes down to, especially when you head back into history and you look at what societies have done when they want to control a bunch of people. And on the very top of that list is always control women's reproduction. And, and it's complicated. It's really complicated, especially if you're an empathetic and compassionate person and you don't want to just point to those people and say, oh, they're fucking crazy. Oh, they're bananas. They don't under, you know, I, 
I do look at those people and who are, you know, especially people who are really, really, really the crazy pro-life people who will come at me on Twitter and say, you're a baby killer. You know, you should be put to death for wanting to do that. And I, and I always try to put myself into their shoes and imagine, oh my God, what must it be like in there for you to want to say that to me and believe, and believe it? Yeah. Cause if you, um, I was just thinking then that if you, you know, you said if you've been indoctrinated into believing in the sanctity of life from the moment of conception, you know, and sort of my, one of the, one of the things that's sort of problematic with that belief being ardently held in my opinion is that, that the sacredness of life then would be so sort of would the correlative of that would mean that no poverty no inequality no homelessness no cruelty because life is sacred from the moment it begins to the moment it ends that's like so i'm down with it if it no, no if death it's, penalty if it's caveat caveated in that manner um but like see that thing of you know, like the the sort of the sentiment that I I recognise and actually understand. I th- like the idea of oh yeah, life. Oh, you know, the sentimentality that must be present in the beliefs is pro life belief system. Do you share any of that? Because if if not, then the process if the if if the process of um, abortion is entirely medical, then it for the for the um, person going through it. it the only emotional impact is an external one of people going like you know if we overnight pro-life disappeared would having an abortion for a woman or for you because i suppose you can only speak for you be just like yeah, like cutting your toenails would you know, no real meaning i i know many 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 people who've terminated pregnancies and i have heard almost no stories where it's just a visit to a doctor and just this thing I have to deal with. Yeah. It just isn't like that, you know? And So it's the same feeling. It's like the person going through the abortion and the protest. It's like, you know, my personal belief, if, you know, if you're interested, it's not about my personal beliefs, this conversation about your beliefs, but mine is like spirituality and the, what you believe is sacred is something that I practice for myself. It's not something that I... For example, more obvious example, I'm vegan, but I, you know, if people hunt and shoot things and that, I'm like, oh, right, yeah, I wouldn't be able to do that. It's not my thing, but um, yeah, it's none of my business. You can crack on, that's your deal. You know, um, so like I, I have no, um, you know, but I sort of, I recognize this sort of sadness in it. And you say that's sad. And my experience of abortion, which is obviously, you know, for women that I've known, it's like very, and also I've not been so, um, affected by it. I'm not American I've never known that kind of sort of that very draconian active Christian mentality I've never known that so for me I've only ever sort of gone oh god this is a horrible difficult thing isn't it isn't this a difficult thing like it's not been in an overtly about the cultural attitude but the personal fuck me this is a sad and difficult experience have you ever been involved in any way in someone getting yeah. an abortion? Yeah. 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 It's it's really complicated. Um, and, you know, the thing that I found, what, part of my show, I talk about um, being at Edinburgh Fringe. And um, I've just gotten married to Neil. I'm in my early 30s. 
I we've barely had a discussion about whether or not to have children. Our relationship is really new. Neil has three grown children, and I'm pretty sure I don't want to have kids, but I guess I'm open to the idea. And I get um, I I get a really bad urinary tract infection, and we're at Fringe, and we've rented a house in Edinburgh, and we're supposed to be there to like have fun, see our friends' shows, do a couple of shows ourselves. We've set it aside as a kind of a working vacation, and like. And we get to hang out and be in glorious bohemian fringe land. And and I'm just sick. So I go to a doctor. I um, get a prescription for antibiotics. And when the doctor writes me the prescription, he says, is there any way you're pregnant? And I'm like, no, there's no fucking way I'm pregnant. I'm sure I didn't say fuck to the doctor. but And then a week later, I found out I was pregnant. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And then within minutes of looking at the pregnancy test and going, oh, my God, am I going to have a baby? Am I, gonna have I remembered the antibiotic, called my family doctor. He said, read me what's on the bottle. I read him what was on the bottle. And he was like, oof, Amanda, I'm really sorry. This one's not going to happen for you and Neil. You're going to need to terminate this pregnancy. That fetus is not going to be okay. And then I had to deal with the guilt of feeling sort of relieved that I didn't have to make a choice. It got made for me, tragically made for me. Um, And then I had an abortion um, a few years later, totally by choice, because I just did not feel ready. And I went through, I pulled Neil through like a circle of hell where I thought maybe I wanted to do it, but then I changed my mind, but then I would change my mind back. And Neil was like, I will support you no matter what you choose. What do you actually choose? When are you going to choose? And I was just sort of, I went through hell. Neil started calling it Schrodinger's baby. <laughs> and I, I, and I decided, you know, and I decided ultimately to have an abortion because I could not get excited about having a child. I just wasn't excited. And I, and I couldn't, I couldn't find my way to get to, yes, I really want to do this. And I thought, well, if I can't get to yes, then maybe I'm not meant to be a mother. I'm more interested in my career. I'm more interested in finishing my book. And if I'm thinking that, maybe this is just not supposed to happen. But then we sort of went through, um, we went through a really brutal lesson in the American healthcare system because I didn't really know what you did about getting an abortion. I just Googled. We wound up in this really low rent clinic. It was so bad, I actually got onto the table. I had been treated so inhumanely, and I got onto the table, put my feet in the stirrups, started weeping, apologized profusely to the doctor and the nurses who were really in a hurry to get everyone through because this was kind of like an abortion factory in Manhattan. And I asked if I could go back into the waiting room, and, um, and I couldn't do it. I left. And I met Neil out in the hallway and I was like, man, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. What was that? I felt so dehumanized by this clinic. They were just treating me like a piece of flesh holding a number. And then we went back, we Googled again. We found a nice abortion 10 blocks away for a lot more money where I was treated compassionately, 
you know, by a bunch of women who open the door and they're like, it's so nice to see you. Come in. Let's talk. What's happening? Here's a cup of tea, Neil. Here's a cup of tea, Amanda. Being called by my name. And I got to have a compassionate abortion. And that experience and those two experiences held up against each other also really, really changed me. And in my show, I talk about this. I left that abortion clinic, the nice one, thinking, you know, those women treated me with such humanity and were so compassionate. I think I might be ready to have a baby. <laughs> and the, and the, the, the ironic timing wasn't lost on me, but it, something shifted because I was treated with care. Um, when we uh, had our children and my wife got sick during the pregnancy and we went to a hospital, um, we started to learn about, you know, sort of birth and the different ways you can have birth. This is where I learned about the, def the defaulting to uh, unconscious, somewhat invisible patriarchal attitudes in institutions such as medicine, that the sort of the mechanization of medicine and the assumption of the almost secondary or subjugated role of the female within that situation. I sort of saw it, I saw it. And I also sort of understood that reproduction and, you know, however you want to refer to it, is, it seems rather obvious, female and female led. And I was thinking when you were explaining your two experiences there that like the, the way that this would have customarily in sort of pre-civilized or societies or earlier civilizations at least there would have women would have handled that shit you know like well, presumably we had we had a different kind of power i mean all of that power and knowledge and the sanctity of those moments because there really is kind of a there needs to be a kind of a sacredness even around those difficult things, around miscarriage, around abortion, around and around the space a woman needs to be in when it happens. And I'm sure you went through this when you went through childbirth. I don't know how you wound up giving birth, but all of these things informed me in a way I don't think I would have been informed. And by the time I was pregnant and ready to give birth, I wanted to be very far away from those systems yeah. because I really had learned um, how it feels to be around people who are not invested in taking care of you and how it feels to be around people who are. And so we had a total, you know, we went off to the woods and did a totally natural childbirth around wow. wizened midwives in their 70s. Oh, man. How it, fucking great. It was so good. And I don't. And I and those all those experiences dropped me off there. I'm not sure we would have had such a such a good birth, you know. And when I say that, I just mean holistically. It's not about what actually happens in that moment. It's sort of about the whole container, you know. How Neil felt, how I felt. Were we relaxed? Were we being taken care of? Was everything okay? And for the most part, when you're being wheeled into a hospital and around people who have no compassion for you and no investment in you and aren't taking care of you, like, no wonder things are often really fucked up and freaked out and not good. Um, so, you know, no matter how it wound up playing out in the end, as usually, you know, as with all of life, every experience sort of got me ready for the experience. Really beautifully told. Thanks. I am. Um, 
when we we went to a birth center, female led birth center. That's where my wife wanted to have a baby, so that's where we had both of them. And like the, with my first daughter, I remember the feeling when this woman from fucking some Latin American woman who was sort of like bigger than me. I don't know if she was physically bigger than me, but she was bigger than me. And like uh, she was so sort of like I remembered how she spoke. I thought, oh, this she knows this is nothing, not nothing to her, but this is normal for her. I really felt at ease. I thought felt at ease with the power of like oh they, they know what they're doing. And yes. then I watched my wife transforming in the water, like sort of like you know this is one question actually. When uh, you see the potency of people's essential nature, it seems to me that it exceeds their individual power. I watched her become sort of a goddess thing, like a conduit of a greater power. And you see that very fundamental idea, which I entirely acknowledge and respect, is necessary for women to reclaim the almost agricultural historic domination of males over females, of like, no, this is my body, I'm me. What about that deeper layer that there is... that? We are a conduit of something else, like an almost religious attitude of, like from my perspective, and this doesn't play out in gender, in a gender sex dynamic, this is a much more personal spiritual sort of thing. My life, when I'm at straight in my head, I, and obviously I've never uh, faced oppression as a woman being a male, but like, so, so it's a, you know, I'm not putting it entirely into that context, but I want your perspective from that context, I suppose. When my life is working, it's when I surrender, like my life is not my life. My life is service. I am service. You know, I go every day, I go back into my ego and my selfish wants and wanting to dominate and control and all of those things. But like when I feel good, it's when I feel you aren't, your, your life's not your life. You belong to something higher, purpose, meaning, you know, like a, comparable to what you were saying about you want people to not feel alone. You want people to feel valued and connected and safe and that it's okay to be them, whoever they are. You know. How do you relate to the contradiction between the necessary assertion of control over their own identity and bodies that is a necessary aspect of feminism and the idea that perhaps on a broader level there might be a requirement for a, sort of a, sur a surrender to a higher kind of nature? Well, this is the same question that I used to ask every single teacher I had in my 20s, which is if if we're if we're all trying to get out of ego and be in oneness and higher power, higher purpose all the time, how how the fuck do we get anything done? <laughs> and it's I mean that's sort of the same question. It's like where are you if you're you know if you're going to get into the specifics of evolving the planet, making change, fixing shit, making food, like being in the realm of the mundane and the realm of the getting shit done. Where where when when do you decide to be all one and when do you decide to be individual contributing to the all one? And uh, and you know I can't answer that. That's fucking impossible. You tell me, you tell me. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, um, I feel like life is that, like, life is that question. Life is that dance. And, you know, I feel as a performer, especially having watched you on stage last night and thinking, you know, you've gone through this whole career of stand-up and performance and being in front of lots of people holding the mic, transmitting whatever 
you decide to transmit in that moment. And, you know, like, it's a real pleasure to watch your professionalism, like watching you dealing with uh, Angela in the wheelchair last night was, it was just such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to watch people who know how to hold other people, like with humor and grace, do it. Oh, wow, thanks. And you, you live that question. Like as the powerful, sexy person with the mic who's on stage doing that, you, like you're a living question mark of that question because all eyes are on you. And so you're, you're you know, you stand out from the pack and the oneness. Otherwise, we would just all be sitting in a field like oming and receiving. But like occasionally someone steps up and is like, so, hey, I have a story. And then everyone goes, okay, is this a story worth listening to? And you go, I don't know, hopefully. Uh, and, and I think that's good. I mean, I think we all trade off. And I think the only answer is that you, you already answered it. You fucking come in and go back and come in and go back and are totally aware of your narcissism and totally aware of your ego. And you're like, okay, got it, check. There I go again. And then you bring it back and you're going to be dancing with that until you die. I was thinking perhaps there's a sort of a different dynamic um, around surrender for females, perhaps, I wonder, um, given that if you surrender, it may seem similar to subjugation and submission to systems of dominance that are not interested in your... Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, and as a, as a, as a woman who has played with the extreme feminine, you know, and the extreme masculine all through my career and like tasting its different flavors of power, it's really confusing. How do you experience those extremes? Well, so much of the music industry, entertainment industry, being a performer is about knowing how to be a man. How do you mean? Um, you know, I've, especially when I look back at my career in the twenties, in my, in my twenties, I, I try to understand my head canon at 25 and like what I was seeing and what I was learning and like how to be on the road, how to tour, how to hold an audience, how to negotiate a deal, how to talk to a promoter, how to talk to an agent, how to get what I wanted, how to convince people that I knew what I was doing. How, like all of those things that I'm sure you went through and still go through. And a lot of what I think I was clocking back then is like you have to act like these men. That's the only way to negotiate this battlefield that is covered with landmines. Mm -hmm. And, and it, you know, and so I sort of found myself like running back and forth between like, okay, but there is also this other narrative where like, I have to look incredibly sexy and like put on lipstick and do my come hither. Like I have this incredible feminine power that's going to seduce you and you're going to want to have sex with me and you're going to want to touch me and you're going to want to think that I'm enigmatic and amazing and confusing and beautiful and all fucked up and all of those things. And, and I know how to do that too. And I love doing that. But also like, I need to pick up the phone and be like, Matt, this deal is not <laughs> fucking working. We have to go back and ask for a different split. And those are two really different, you know, fe feminine, 
attraction and and the stand especially the standardized version of what feminine attraction is and then the standardized version of like what male attraction is like if feminine attraction is all this then male is like you know this like you're you're sitting back and like you're dominating in a completely different style and i think a lot of my 20s and 30s was just sitting in the confusion of like okay if i want to get business done and stuff then i need to be really masculine and if i want to get attraction done you know and be like amazing fucked up amanda palmer who's going to tell you her emotional truth and scream and pound on her piano that's a totally different self and they weren't really in bed together and i think a lot of my 30s and 40s has just been about getting those two beings to like find union with one another so that i don't have to feel like i'm code switching all the time and that both sides of me are present in both aspects of work or performance or mothering or or having sex or being a friend that i'm not trying to figure out what you need and do you need masculine me or feminine me but like you know i show up as a whole, I, I show up as a, as a as a yin and a yang at the same time because hopefully both of these things can be of service i don't have to totally subjugate myself and i don't have to totally be the aggressor <laughs> i prefer that one the here one yeah i i know <laughs> um what about this friend who you lost through cancer what happened my best friend anthony you would have loved him he was um he moved in next door to me when i was nine i read about him a lot in my book in the art of asking and he was really really sick uh during the writing and the pub and the publishing of the book and he you know i grew up in this sort of very sweet straight suburban massachusetts you know my parents were really nice they read new york they read the new yorker they ordered all their clothes from ll bean like you know my stepdad was a physicist my mom was a computer programmer we had a nice house everything was pretty it was sweet and straight and my childhood even though my, you know my, my parents had split when i was really young and that's its own story um but i def i i had this missing hole and anthony moved in next door when i was 9 like scripted he just showed up and he was my friend and mentor from the moment i laid eyes on him and he and his wife hadn't had children so he sort of adopted me and i adopted him as my mentor father figure and he taught me everything in my teen years about mindfulness meditation yoga um and he was a professional therapist so he was kind of in a roundabout way like i had it's like i had my own personal therapist living next door who taught me things and told me about things that none of the other adults in my community were talking about anthony was just a different planet and i moved to planet anthony um much to the consternation of my parents and the community also thought it was very fucking weird that this 35-year-old guy was hanging out with this 15-year-old girl and there must be something wrong with that and so we were you know our whole relationship was sort of deemed inappropriate but we were 
in a very strange way, we were best friends from the time I was in my mid-teens until the time he died when I was seven months pregnant. Um, and since he didn't have kids, uh, when he got sick with cancer and it wound up being a four-year battle, I just moved back to Boston with Neil and held vigil and took him to chemo. And, and you know, and a, a lot of my life story is now entangled with that because he got sick right before my massive Kickstarter campaign. So a lot of my life was a juggle between doing that tour, but also canceling legs of that tour so that I could go home and be with him because he was just about to die. Oh no, he's not gonna die. Is he gonna die? Uh, no, I'll rebook my tour. No, and now I have to cancel this tour. So my professional life was really, really um, a mess for a while because of wanting to be there to take care of him and also wanting to make sure that I did not miss it when he left. And we were actually, Neil and I were in London when I was seven months pregnant and we were staying in an Airbnb in London when I got the phone call saying like, you need to come home right now. And I was like, oh, I think I can probably make it home by Saturday. And my friend Nicholas was like, oh no, 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 no. Like now, get on a plane. And I remember being with Neil and like getting in a black cab and to, you know, like in the movies, like going to Heathrow and going, is there a plane to Boston? And getting on it and getting there just in time to hold on to him while he died. And it was really amazing because they teach you all these things about death, you know, that it's scary, that it's gross, that it's abhorrent. And I just, I found it such a beautiful experience to be with him and to then be with his beautiful dead body. And also, like, I was hugely pregnant at the time. I was seven months pregnant. So it's like holding him while he died. And I don't really believe in reincarnation. But I was like, if it existed. It's a golden opportunity. Oh, my God. Like, so, boop, like, so, <laughs> just <laughs> right down the navel. Uh, um, but it was a really, it was a really gorgeous experience. And I remember thinking, like, wow, like, why? You know, and we had, we hung, his body hung around for about a day before we made the call and said, okay, come over with the bag and take him to wherever he's headed. And he got cremated. But I just, you know, we're so bad at this stuff. We're so bad at death. We're so bad at birth. We're so bad at miscarriage and these sort of like these, these dark, scary things that, you know, are hopefully going to happen over there in a hospital and we won't have to look at it. And we won't have to deal with it. And we won't have to make space for this whole person who's going through this whole experience. And when you start having more of these experiences and you start unpicking it and you see how bad we are as a society at just taking care of each other, taking care of our babies, taking care of our dying people, taking care of each other. We're just fuck. We're just fucking terrible at it. What things did you encounter after Anthony died that you didn't anticipate, even though you had the prelude of a long period mm. of potential death? What are the things that kicked in? That's such a good question. Uh, I think one of the things that didn't occur to me until he was physically gone and this is I have I've lost a lot of people in my life but this is the first time a, a big death had 
you know, that someone I really, really was close to all my life and considered my, you know, he was really like my closest person, my closest friend. And I remember clocking at some point, like maybe in the weeks after he died. And go with me for a second here, because it's going to sound really simple, but it, to me it was really profound. That his life was finite and that anything he was going to do, he had done. That his story was now turned off. And and that everyone's life is going to be like that. That like you're going to run around, you're going to do all these things, you're going to do a podcast, you're going to eat a watermelon, you're going to do all of these activities. And then when it ends, those are all the things you will have done. And then your story, like the book is closed. And whether it's seven pages or 7,000 pages, it doesn't really matter. Like this is like, here you go. This is what you did. And I just remember thinking that one day and being like, oh my God, like he's never going to do anything again. He's never going to, he's never going to eat pasta again. He's never going to have a cup of coffee. He's never going to go on a walk with Laura. He's never, I'm, he's never going to have another phone call with me. Like he did everything he's going to do. And now when we think of the story of his life, it's just going to be the collection of those things. And I know that sounds really fucking basic, but it, it sort of hit me one day like a ton of bricks that his story is now a story. Like the story of his life is now told yeah. or will be told by me here, by his wife, by his brother, by his millions of patients, by whoever he affected. And it also... You know, Neil and I talk about this a lot, and he was talking about this the other night when he did a chat at the literary festival, that we forget how under everything, under all of the insanity, under all of the technology, under all of the ego, like that the stories are what we have as human beings, like as human beings who have been around for tens of thousands of years, who need to pass important information back and forth that we have figured out this way of doing it that's really essential and it's storytelling like i'm going to take this important information that you really need to fucking know and i'm going to pack it in something that you can digest and remember and i'm going to give it to you it's a story so you can hang on to it and especially being here like on this stolen land where, you know, these folks, the native inhabitants of this land that they still really should own because they haven't ceded sovereignty, their stories go back more generations than we can even really hold in our head. Like, there are people passing down stories now to, to a 2,000th generation member of their tribe. You know, like, don't go over there. This isn't okay. This is what will keep you safe. Don't do it that way. These are, you know. And 
And, and this loops back to the thing about Anthony, because once someone is gone, that's what they become. They kind of become the story of a person who once lived. They're not around anymore. They're only around, you know, I forget who was, there's this beautiful quote that like, you're, you, have to, you have a couple of deaths. You know, the first death is when your body discorporates and then the second death is the last time someone speaks your name ever. Them stories, them um, indigenous stories, I feel like relate to the disconnection and dislocation that we experience around, say, birth, miscarriage, death, life, this inability to function. And I think a lot about the false false markers of technological and medical advancement which sort of create this idea of a, a, a utopia and, and the myth of progressivism when in fact there is this sort of parallel universe held in archetypes and symbols neglected like these the idea of stories that have found wound their way through 2000 generations and that sort of here at this time of where people are suffering from mental depression and we're experiencing ecological breakdown and inequality and you can bet your life that those stories are about how you know don't go over there don't do that this is what we do we don't do that we've lost our harmony you know all those events you've described are this sort of nexus apexes and the deer of nature the low points and the high points the inevitable points of nature which we've sort of cocooned ourselves and excluded ourselves from not through any kind of choice but through this sort of inertia of apparent progress finding ourselves lost and dislocated and it's only when those moments come where you sort of you know make a decision to take control over your own life and body or you someone just dies and that's that now you know that you're confronted with Oh fuck, this wasn't, this isn't reality. This isn't the reality. I've been adrift. And I feel like what you're talking about a lot with your performance, Amanda, is that you're um, creating spaces where you pull people into here. We're here. And I think that's the only place that change can come from is when you generate and create that kind of crucible of like, right, we're actually here. We're awake. We could do stuff differently now, now in this moment. It is going to be one of the fascinating things about this generation. Like when you think about the span of your career as a stage dweller, um, which is probably about the same as mine. I don't know when you started doing shows, but, you know, around the turn of the century. And, um, and we didn't grow up digital natives it's so fascinating to me right now watching that dance between let's all get in a room together and do a thing and you know let's be on the internet together and do a thing um and i like if anyone has like tasted the incredible sweetness uh, and the extreme bitterness of being together with a lot of people on the internet, it, it's me. And I know, you know, you, you have too in your own way doing social media and YouTube or whatever, but there's like a, you know, when I talk about your professional gesture dealing with a mic cable caught in a wheelchair, there's like a whole set of gestures and consciousness that we have learned as, you know, 
things would have been different if we were trying to do this in the 70s. It just is so. Because we've got, on the one hand, this whole capacity to be a performer on a stage and hold a mic and hold a space for everyone to go like, oh my God, we're here and this is happening and we're not alone and this is real and life is lifelike. And then, you know, and we're also simultaneously holding a different kind of space when you're doing things like putting out a podcast digitally through the internet and then trying to hold a conversation around it or tweeting a tweet or whatever you're doing in it. And, you know, those skills inform each other. But I was even like, I was mom-like looking at your moment last night going like, oh, like I can imagine the three ticker tapes that are going through Russell's head right now. He's like, I'm performing and this is going to be like beautiful, compassionate and amusing because I can hold this space because I'm a fucking professional and I love this woman and I love this crowd and they love me. And if they don't, we're still going to pull it all together and this is going to work. And then the other one going, oh my God, I've got a curfew and I've got these people coming after the show. And if I spend seven minutes doing this, then I'm going to have to skip step eight and da, 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 da. And you're like doing all of that mental math while you're doing the entire thing. And then there's another line under there going like, oh, if this story gets told wrong on the internet tomorrow, mm-hmm. I'm going to be the man who sexually assaulted a woman in a wheelchair. And I'm are like already coming up with my, you know, and like, and you're running all of this at the same time in one head while holding a mic and speaking. And there was that, you know, like there, I, there, there was this part of me that just wanted to like, you know, not just, not just applaud the, great funny and the great sweet moment that that was but also like congratulations you for doing three things at one time <laughs> well thank it's you it's hard I'm glad that you did it for me now yeah thank you congratulations thank you. Get, a, you, get a, you get a pat oh wow that's what I live for I know. Um, yeah, so, do, so do I yeah, that's I get what it. I do I get it yeah I see what um, we have in common obviously I can never understand what, what is different about us and what separates us but I can very strongly feel what we have in common you have a lot in common with Neil too. Oh, really? Well, you guys sort of. I mean, of I love his up, work. We grew up in the same pool of British Kool Aid. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I certainly identify a lot with his storytelling. I've been told I got a wrap up by Jenny, who's in charge of this experience, and did a dissertation on you. So, Jenny, do, I must feel that I've, you know, listened enough, but I understand that you're a person that we can just plug into seemingly limitlessly so thank you amanda for sharing those complex ideas so bravely and articulately and humorously you're really wonderful you flatter me Russell. i do do that that's one of the things i do do but i'm also sincere i know you are uh it's very nice of you to have me on your podcast oh great thanks thanks see you again soon Thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin with Amanda Palmer. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram and, uh, you know, all of those places. Remember, I'm touring still in Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the United States with my new show, Recovery Live. About recovering, really, from a spiritual condition rather than a global pandemic. <laughs> uh, if, if you can, uh, yeah, have a look at russellbrand.com and sign up for the mailing list while you're there. Put good stuff out on that mailing list. In the meantime, why don't you go back and listen to Billy Bragg, for Christ's sake. Not necessarily on my Luminary podcast. Just just sneak up near him and listen to him at his shins. Check my YouTube channel for news daily and for spiritual videos and all that. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. <laughs>